Hello, my name is Michael Taylor. I'm an economist, and my what I do is I look at about 500 different data points from all the major economies around the world. Uh, so that's 500 in a month, and what I'm trying to do is identify those pieces of data which land um, either a standard deviation above or below uh, where you'd expect them to be or where consensus expected them to be. Um, if they land above one standard deviation, I call it a surprise. If it lands below one standard deviation, I call it a shock. So this is looking at global shocks and surprises. And the reason I'm doing it is really twofold. Firstly, I think this, uh, this, uh, this tracking of shocks and surprises illustrates how the world is actually behaving relative to consensus on a quite sort of uh, real-time basis. And secondly, um, it also, by being quite disciplined about identifying those shocks and surprises, it allows me to focus down on those which might actually be telling us something significant rather than uh, just being a sort of accident. Um, I do it every week, and this report is for the week uh, to the 20th of December. Now, globally, this was a pretty positive week. 20% uh, of the data that's, that landed uh, were surprises, 15% shocks. This is actually uh, the most positive week we've had uh, since early November. Um, I look at a global six-week single. It's still mildly negative, but it's about to bounce. And broadly speaking, the US and Europe were positive. Uh, Asia continues to be negative as it has been for the last six weeks. Um, just sort of to anticipate what I'm going to be talking about, uh, the standouts, um, there was a broad spectrum strength for U.S. domestic demand signals, whether that's labor markets or income or housing markets in particular. Um, in Asia, the world trade uh, situation still uh, shows up very weakly in, in, in there. Uh, and in Europe, the, there are two factors, I think, going on, one of which is Germany's recovery from economic funk. And uh, the other is more surprising, I think, and that is um, the UK's uh, confidence pre-election. Okay, let's start with the US. Uh, the US generated 23% surprises and 19% uh, shocks, which was actually the reverse image of, of what happened last week. But like the previous week, uh, the quality of the surprises was much greater than those of, of, of the shocks. In fact, when you look at the surprises, they embraced a range of data which together support continued strength in domestic demand and give that a, a really quite strong fundamental base. Uh, for example, uh, you look at the labor markets, and in October, the JOLTS job opening survey, which basically looks at how many people are trying to be hired in, 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 in the U.S., Job openings uh, rose 3.3% uh, a month on month to about 7.27 million. Uh, there was a fall in September, and this October number almost fully reversed that fall. Then later in the week, we had um, the personal income and spending uh, survey for uh, November, and this showed that uh, income was up um, 0.5% month-on-month, 4.9% year-on-year, which is a good acceleration. Uh, compensation and wages are up about 0.4%, but you've got a big bump coming in from uh, rental income and also income from assets, which was up uh, about 0.8%. So you've got strong labor markets, and that's coming through in strong income growth. 
so not surprisingly, you're also seeing confidence indicators in the US also beginning to really um, surge again. Um, a couple that came in this week, uh, the IBD uh, TIPP Economic Optimism Index for December was up 7.8%, uh, uh, which is uh, quite, quite sort of uh, remarkably strong. Uh, and that's driven by uh, a 12.8% jump in the index looking uh, at the six-month economic uh, outlook. So as far as sort of small businessmen are concerned and, and, and investors are concerned, a very, very strong number. Uh, in addition, uh, the University of Michigan, which uh, produces one of the two main consumer confidence indicators, revised up its previous uh, index for December uh, to the highest since May. Uh, current conditions up 3.5%, expectations up 1.8%. So, okay, we've got labor markets looking good, income looking good, consumer confidence looking good, business confidence looking good. And, of course, where it ends up is it ends up in the housing market, which is both the cause and beneficiary of bullish confidence. And uh, we had a really very strong number from the National Association of House Builders. It's a sort of co uh, industry confidence indicator for, for these builders. And that index jumped five points to 76, which is actually the highest reading we've seen so far this century. Uh, and you're seeing that confidence also coming through in building permits in November. Uh, these have been rising really quite sharply over the last sort of four months. And they rose another 1.4% in um, November uh, to the highest number actually since May 2007. So we've got this nexus in the U.S. where you're suddenly getting a whole raft of mutually supporting signals suggesting fundamentally strong domestic demand. If we move over to Asia now, it really is the mirror image. Um, if the U.S. is looking unusually strong, Asia is uh, really kind of suffering at this point. Um, it's reported net positive news only once in the last 14 weeks, and it wasn't this week. Um, this week's data gave you 13% surprises, but 18% uh, shocks. I uh, look at a six-week signal to give us kind of general picture, and it's now sunk to its deepest gloom since February. And what's really kind of coming through again and again is the weakness in global trade performance that's actually beginning to drag the region down. Um, this week we had uh, three uh, new additions to that. Um, Japan's November exports were down 7.9% in yen terms, uh, and that uh, helped it to an unexpected uh, trade deficit in November of, uh, 70, of 82 billion yen. Uh, over in Thailand, um, November exports were down 7.4%. That's in dollar terms. Uh, and the monthly movement was uh, 0.8 standard deviations below historic seasonal trend. And once again, that means that its trade surplus, which was pretty sizable at 549 million US dollars, it was still less than expected. Uh, across to Indonesia, you know, really a very similar story. Um, exports down. 5.7% in dollar terms, uh, monthly movement, 0.2 standard deviations below trend. And um, again, the trade balance is a thing that's suffering. 
Um, it's uh, it, it, although there was a surplus of 1.33 billion US dollars, this was still disappointing um, in in trend terms. I tend to look at Northeast Asia as being the kind of the industrial hub of trade uh, for the region. So it's China, Japan, uh, Korea, and Taiwan. And if you look at that in November. Um, Northeast Asia's exports fell 4% um, year on year in, in, in dollar terms. China's down 2.5%, Japan down 4.1%, South Korea down 14.3%, and Taiwan down 3.3%. And that November number was a deflection below historic seasonal trends of about 0.3 standard deviations. Now, that doesn't sound too bad. And in fact, on a six-month basis, Northeast Asia's exports are almost conforming to trend. The problem is, at this point, that the five-year trend is now quite sharply negative. Overall, Northeast Asia's exports are going to fall about 2.5% in 2019. And if they just conform to that five-year trend now, they're going to fall by about 2% in 2020 as well. Um, so, you know, the problem isn't that there's sort of something hitting it now. The problem is that the trend has turned static to mildly negative. Um, and to get out of that uh, is going to demand policy changes either in Asia itself or uh, elsewhere in the world economy. There was another significant disappointment in Asia uh, this week, and that came from Hong Kong. And once again, we've got another situation where the bills are coming due for the continued political unrest, and the bills are hefty. Uh, we had the th um, Hong Kong's um, third quarter current account balance, and although this showed a surplus of 74.4 Hong, uh, Hong Kong dollars billions, and although that was 26.7 billion better than in third quarter of 2018, this was still a disappointment. Why? Well, the trade deficit shrank by 53.1 billion year on year to just 347 million, just 347 million in, in, in 3Q. Now, for those of you familiar with Hong Kong, you know, we know this place runs habitually uh, a very, very sizable trade deficit and offsets it with a, a, an even bigger services surplus. It's a services town. So... The trade deficit shrank by 53.1 billion and came to this just tiny, tiny, tiny 347 million in third Q, but Q. But these gains were partly reversed by the services surplus shrinking by 24.4 billion to just 38.8 billion. And what's going on here, of course, is the tourists are no longer coming to Hong Kong because uh, either the airport or the MTR is blocked, or there is uh, political trouble and tear gas. And if you're a mainland, uh, a mainland Chinese person, would you want to be throwing in your lot and going on your holiday to pre-revolutionary Hong Kong? Possibly not. Consequently, in the third quarter of this year, Hong Kong's tourist income fell by 21.6 billion. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, this is actually beginning to give a, a, a real dent in, um, in, in, in Hong Kong's numbers. Um, Hong Kong has, of course, gone into a, a defensive financial crouch. And one of the ways you can look at that is by looking at its private sector savings, surplus or deficit. And when they go into a, 
uh, financial crouch, you know, that savings surplus goes up and it is now rising very rapidly. Uh, it's a sharply seasonal number, so I'm not going to bother you with the with the quarterly, but on a 12-month basis, we're now up to about 5% of GDP saving surplus. And this is the highest since 2010, but it's clearly going to rise sharply from here. I think we'll be looking at probably a surplus of about 8.5% for 2019 as a whole. And unless tensions relax significantly next year, the trend trajectory for this surplus is to rise to near 20% in uh, 2020. Uh, this will have uh, a major impact on how we view Hong Kong and its finances and its currency and um, the sort of flows we see into and out of Hong Kong. Finally, to Europe. And the thing that's startling about Europe at the moment is that uh, it's seemingly forgotten the economic and financial funk that it sank into a couple of months ago. Uh, and the result is that its numbers are now coming in uh, strongly positive, uh, mainly thanks to confidence indicators. This week, the continent generated 23% surprises, 10% shocks. Now, this recovery of nerve is seen nowhere more dramatically than in Germany. And uh, last, in the previous week, uh, the Zoo, Germany's ZU survey, which is a, a survey of German financial industry uh, opinion, it showed uh, expectations jumping 12.8 points to the highest since February 2018. And this term, week, it was the turn of Germany's IFO survey um, to, to identify this steadying of the nerves. Um, the IFO survey's business climate index and its expectations index both rose to the highest that it's been since June, uh, with a sharp rise also seen in uh, current conditions. Uh, Germany is not alone in uh, showing these improved spirits. France's December manufacturing business climate index rose uh, better than expected, and uh, Italy's December consumer confidence index also rose 2% to beat expectations. But I want to identify what's going on in, in the UK because I think it is genuinely surprising. Um, the December GFK Consumer Confidence Report, which is one of the few direct confidence consumer confidence uh, reports we get from the UK, this rose three points to minus 11 on the back of a seven-point improvement in economic expectations. Now, this is sort of wouldn't be so surprising were it not for the fact that the survey's closing date was on November the 11th, so no one at this point knew the general election result. The surge in confidence seems to have anticipated a re-establishment of political stability in the way which, frankly, I wasn't feeling on November the 11th, and I don't think uh, was seen in the national media either. Meanwhile, if you look at the costs of the of the political instability we've seen this year in the UK, there are wrenching distortions going through the economy, and they're heavily disguised. You'd never know it uh, if you just looked at the headline of the final revision of third quarter GDP, which revised growth up to 0.4% quarter on quarter, annualizing to 1.7%. Not bad. That headline suggests relatively smooth progress, but this is like a swan. There's a massive effort, volatility, and turbulence under the surface. And if you strip down that data and look at it carefully, you'll find that the main features of the third quarter rise was a massive inventory dump. 
private sector just had been clearly stocking up and said, right, we're not going to be in trouble. We're, the, the, the trade picture is not going to be in trouble for the time being. We're going to dump it all on the market. And that inventory dump stripped out 1.7 percentage points from, from that 0.4% Q&Q growth. But at the same time, it also did wonders for our trade position. So we saw a very sharp rise in net exports, which added back 2.3 percentage points to quarter-on-quarter growth. So, you know, the situation is inventory dump takes off 1.7 percentage points from growth, but impact on net exports puts 2.3 percentage points back. These are epic commercial jitters during the quarter, uh, and it's those that are driving the headline, not the 0.3% rise in household consumption or the 0.2% rise in gross fixed capital formation. This is an economy which we really can't see how it's going to stabilize out in, the, in, in 2020 um, because, as I say, the headlines are revealing uh, you know, really uh, very sharp movements underneath the, the smooth surface, and we've got to see how this is going to shake out in 2020. Well, that's it for today. Uh, this has been my first attempt to a podcast. I hope that you found it interesting. Thank you. Bye.